Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Kivitz Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we are in the midst of the midpoint. We can we can set our finger on the middle and balance the book uh, in Chapter 5, <laughs> where we're talking about apologetics as proof. And uh, later on, we'll be covering apologetics as defense and offense. Uh, we uh, Frame has talked about that uh, before, but uh, here he's offering... Um, uh, theistic arguments uh, that uh, might seem a little bit familiar to us, both either as presuppositionalists or as classicalists, because you know some of these are going to uh, ring uh, familiar to us. And so we looked at uh, the last two episodes covering uh, kind of the moral argument, uh, what uh, what Frame has, uh, I think, um, uh, pointed on, and also Dr. Anderson when we uh, um, uh, talked to him. Uh, that the the moral argument is very potent as as a a formidable um, proof for the existence of God, and especially when you're having dialogue with somebody, uh, talking to them about uh, uh, having a basis for morality, not just oh you know we we do it because it makes us feel good. Well, okay, what makes you feel good is not always what makes other people feel good. And you know what if uh, we come into conflict and you want to do something that makes you feel good. And not doing that will make somebody else feel good. So, uh, we we have, uh, what Frame points out is that there needs to be some basis uh, for uh, grounding that morality, and so that's what we cover in the, the next two. Uh, but in this one, uh, we're getting into the epistemolo- epistemological argument. That's how uh, we can know things. That's the study of of knowledge, uh, how how we how it comes about. And so, uh, starting kind of in the middle of chapter five here. Uh, he, he goes on by saying, epistemological arguments traditionally start with the phenomenon of human rationality and ask, well, how can that be? How is it possible that the human mind correlates so well with the structures of the world that people can make sense of the world? It's all random chaos. You know, the, the, the little thing blew up into a lot of big things. And somehow we're able to interact with with that uh, outside perspective, even though we, we know barely anything about our insides. And, uh, you know, whether or not we have a mind or or the ability to correlate our senses to what is truth, maybe uh, what our senses are telling us are, are only what's uh, good for survival. So how how do we know that that um, that that uh, relationship exists between kind of the outside world and the internal world of ourselves? Yeah, in fact, we even define truth based on that idea. The correspondence <laughs> says that. A belief is true if it corresponds to the world. And so, you know, we, in order to determine even what truth is, we have to know this kind of what the world is like and why, how our beliefs could or possibly uh, correspond to the world. Right. And so it's, it's just an amazing thing. If this is all by chance, what a huge, you know, um, amazing chance it is that we're able to, you know, our minds correlate so well with the structure of how the world is, correlates so well that we can have mathematical, you know, uh, specific types of theories that are based on math and that sort of thing that can get to very details and uh, of things and how they work in the world. It's just an amazing thing, right? And, right. and especially if it's by chance, right? Which right. Obviously, you know that that seems way against the pale, right? Yeah, and and so that's why uh, in uh, Mitch Stokes' book, uh, uh, "How to Be an uh, Atheist," uh, he talks about how the the formulation of the multiverse theory 
helps with that chance theory because, oh, we just happen to exist in the universe where that chance comes down to less than one over infinity, which is infinity, and makes it more palpable because you have infinity worlds to deal with, and we're just one of those infinities, even though actual infinity can't exist, but still. But uh, you don't even have to be crazy creationists like us. You can be, uh, uh, you know, uh, intelligent design theorists. And so uh, you have a, a, an intelligent being who creates uh, uh, entities who are able to uh, uh, rationally um, uh, interact with the world and have a correlation with, with that truth. So it, it seems like uh, the, the God perspective here brings in uh, an element of understanding of how we can even know, uh, you know, outside of our fingertips, uh, let alone inside. Yeah. So, uh, frame goes on to say that there must be a rational structure in the world that mirrors or is mirrored by the rational structure in the human mind, right? If the world uh, developed by pure chance, it would be highly unlikely that the human experience would mirror the reality of the world in the way that usually assumes it does. Again, you know, why do we give uh, uh, psychotropic drugs to people who experience the world in a different way. We say, you know, that they're mentally ill or unstable, uh, that they're uh, not uh, uh, having uh, the same touch with reality uh, that that we do. We call it psychosis and, and all those things. You know, but why is that the case? How, you know, how do we know that the person claiming to be Napoleon isn't really Napoleon? <laughs> you know, it's just because a group of people in lab coats have have uh, deemed it so, and and we view them as as dangerous and radical. But what if that's not the case? And what if they're experiencing the world in a in a touch point that's different than our touch point, and they've just evolved in a certain way that 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 happens? And the drugs are only there to 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 model the behavior of 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 what we think is acceptable. So. Uh, you know, where, where does it, where does our, our grounding for the the theory of of how we know things? Where does that exist, and and how does that how does that relate uh, uh, to us to the outside world? Right, and so uh, uh, frame here says that the theory of evolution, you know, tries to show usually on a non theistic basis the likelihood of human rationalities developing into a reliable interpreter of the of the world. But even if evolution were true, he tells us, why would pure chance have given rise to evolution itself? You know, systems so uh, meticulously and rationally calculated to maximize the preservation of species. Right? So even, you know, how did evolution become a system <laughs> in, in that's so meticulous and so rational, he tells us, if everything is just by chance? Right. Right. We, 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 we want to, uh, evolution wants the, the uh, wants, uh, that that's a, a desire statement. <laughs> it, 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 it happens. It, it, it just, uh, so moves like a, a, a wheel falling down, down the hill that, uh, survival is, is the thing that it generates. So why is two plus two equal four? And how are we able to know that? And how is that a consistent theme in the in the universe that we call it laws and and codify them and have uh you know these these corollary uh, uh uh developments of theorems where we're then taking big big piles of of fuel uh lighting it putting people on top of it and sending them to uh, uh bodies outside of us but yeah. how, how is that the case if if just evolution is just this process of survival that we're able to do things um, uh, other than just survive. Well, then he goes on to say, certainly, again, the hypothesis of absolute 
personality explains the data far better than the hypothesis of ultimate impersonality right and those were the so again the, this the distinction between the personal and the impersonal right right right, yeah. right. and and if uh, if you know uh uh, uh william Lynn craig's uh Kalam argument is you uh exist past the the uh first cause of the first cause uh uh you know he 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 brings this up as as well as uh either you know god is personal or it's impersonal uh and and so um that that might be familiar to uh, uh classical theists an absolute uh, personality can make a rational universe because he himself is rational and is plain for uh, is is plain for creation and providence is therefore rational the case becomes even stronger when we recall what was said in the previous section that truth is an ethical value telling the truth is a thing that is good uh, but ought versus is why is it good to tell the truth what if it's good to tell not the truth but here, truth is an ethical value. The rational quest, like the ethical quest, is covenantal. It's personal related. Uh, there, there's an agreement. Uh, that there, there are benefits to both sides, and there are repercussions for breaking that covenant. It essentially amounts to discovering the will of an absolute person. Ethic discovers his will for our actions. Epistemology discovers his will for our beliefs. Right, so that's kind of an interesting, you know, way to take it, right? Ethics discovers his will for our actions, how we should behave, what we should do. Epistemology discovers his will for our beliefs, right? What, how we take the world to be and that sort of thing. So we discover that epistemology allows us to do that. Yeah, and this that also answers though. the question too, you know, why does God care what we believe? Well, if, if what he orders the universe is what his desire for us to know, then why he cares about what we believe, he wants us to have right thinking, which is in line with his thinking. And then how do we get in line with his thinking? Well, if only there's some sort of revelation tool that he can provide for us that allows us to discover both ethics and epistemology on the way that God thinks. Well, yeah, okay. good. Yeah, he says even logic itself is value-based. He says, if I confess that all men are mortal and that Socrates is a man, what is it that requires me to confess that Socrates is mortal, right? He says, the laws of physics certainly do not stop anyone from making errors in logic. Right? <laughs> now, yeah. we might, it might point them out to us when we run into the wall because we, you know, <laughs> assumed it wasn't there, right? He says, it's that uh, being logical leads to success and happiness, well, no, not necessarily. It doesn't always do that, right? So not the laws of physics, not some practical well-being logical leads to success and happiness. No, that he says not, not, that's not always the case. Well, then is logic an evolutionary development to ensure the preservation of the human species? Well, he says, um, even assuming that evolution were true, it's not clear that being logical always or even usually preserves life, right? After all, he says cockroaches have inhabited the world much longer than, than man, right? And they'll, you know, bacteria, we wouldn't say bacteria is logical, right? Yeah, yeah they're making yeah, logical deductions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If if I kill the host, then I die. So therefore I, I wanna I wanna change yeah. my DNA structure a little bit so that the <laughs> penicillin doesn't kill me. Yeah, they're, they're not yeah. making those types of value judgments at all. Right, right. So preservation of human species, what's the big deal about that? You know, uh, logic allows for that. And he's arguing 
Well, not it's not clear that being logical always preserves the species, right? Sometimes there's other uh, other things that allows for preservation. Right. So furthermore, if evolution seeks to ensure the preservation of a species, then it would seem to have personal characteristics or to be uh, the tool of a person. So here's kind of the uh, intelligent design sneaking in under the, the, the basis <laughs> of science. It is entirely impersonal at, with no personal causes. Then it has no power to make uh, logic normative. And if logic is not normative, we have no obligation to it whatsoever. No, the power of logic is normative and ethical. It tells us what we ought to confess as the conclusion, granting our confession uh, of, of the premises, right? So that is really an interesting kind of take on logic, right? It's, it's, uh, it's, he says it's beyond just rational. It's also ethical. It tells us what we ought to believe. This is what we should believe based on premises and that sort of thing. And so there's an ethical component of logic, uh, which is kind of fascinating. Right, right. And uh, I've I've heard atheists say, like, I want to believe only all true premises. I I, want to believe only all true things. Well, then if you ask them, okay, let's say that God exists and uh, he's the creator of the universe and it is man's uh, uh, primary goal to uh, glorify him and enjoy him forever. Would you do that? Well, no. Okay, then you're running into a, a, a conflict with what your base statement is. If if that's what it is good to do is to glorify God, then you know the the, the logical conclusion would be well, yes. If I'm shown that God exists and and He's the ultimate Creator and that's His goal for us, we should do those things. But we run into the well, I don't like Him, therefore I'm I'm not going to do that. So it, it it seems that the reevaluation of the ethics and the, the well I'll just put up a, a logical deduction here or a scientific proof and well I'm, I'm then forced to believe those things uh, d- doesn't seem to, to, to hold the water that uh, that the other side claims uh, uh, is the case frame goes on to say that uh, if it is ethical it, it is covenantal the, the moral values it rests on depend uh, a dependable world of a trustworthy person a Lord or uh, our absolute a divine personality. Thus, when an unbeliever uses logic to raise objections against Christianity, they're using something that manipulated it how they may points in the opposite direction of what they what they want. They, they're, they're talking about, well, you should believe those things. Well, why should I believe those things? Uh, well, because they're true. Well, I, but I have no obligation to that unless if it is this covenantal and holds a, 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 a moral sway. So it, it's not just epistemology, but morality is baked into uh, the, the epistemological uh, framework as well. Okay, so next he moves to what he calls metaphysical arguments. And of course now um, uh, the classicalists will be really familiar with this type of argumentation. And so he says, uh, most of the arguments traditionally used in apologetics, most of them begin with some fundamental reality in the universe and try to show that that reality presupposes, implies, or somehow requires God. So they look at the world, they look at the reality of the world, what's, you know, uh, what's in the world, our experience of the world, and they try to move from our experience of the world uh, to, to requiring that God exists, right? And he says these are called metaphysical arguments, and the most common one starts from purpose, 
cause and being itself, right? So those are the three, what he calls metaphysical arguments that he wants to take a look at. One based on purpose, one based on cause, and one based on being, right? So he wants us to consider those various uh, kinds of traditional metaphysical argument. Right, right. And so one that we're probably really familiar with is the teleological argument. Uh, of course, uh, Dawkins hates this one because something about a giraffe's neck or, or something like that. Um, but the teleological argument is perhaps the strongest argument of all when it is considered informally. But it has always been one of the weakest when theologians and philosophers had tried to state it formally. Even Immanuel Kant, the most influential modern critic, again, Kant, uh, 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 we, we, we know from uh, from uh, the, the, the ta argument uh, without the G, uh, he, he's the, the uh, um, uh, transcendental, he, the transcendental yeah. argument. But here yeah. the, with the teleological argument, he says that uh, that uh, him being a critic for the proof of God's existence found the starry heavens above together with the moral law within to be a remarkable testimony to the re reality of God. So here's, you know, Immanuel Kant, uh, you know, no slouch, He's in all your textbooks, and he's even saying that uh, the design argument, uh, the 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 purposefulness, the, the intricacies, the the uh, the big and the the, the really small, uh, uh, go a long way to saying uh, this is quite good proof for the reliability that God does exist. Yeah. All right. So. Uh, so you know, even Kant kind of looked at this and suggested something was going on here. And then he, uh, obviously, one of the most famous um, arguments was put forth by Thomas Aquinas when uh, he, he suggested that when we see, you know, unintelligible things, atoms, matter, energy, and so forth, working together for a purpose, we generally attribute that to an intelligent designer. So teleological means pertaining to purpose or goal. That's the idea here. So intuitively, he tells us, we feel the power of such thinking. But how do we formulate it into an argument? So we have this, yeah, it seems like things, there's purposefuls, there's uh, order, there's design. So how do we formulate that into an argument? Well, he says, historically, most such attempts have been unsuccessful. <laughs> that uh, there is, for one thing, counter evidence for design. And, and uh, this is sometimes called a disteleology. <laughs> so not teleology, but disteleology. And so this is the existence of, for instance, evil, right? And this obviously is the strongest counter argument and counter evidence for design. Uh, for another thing, he tells us Hume, right? David Hume proposed alternative explanations for the order of the world. Right? Hume suggests that maybe the world isn't like machinery. Maybe it's like a, a giant vegetable, right? <laughs> Rather than uh, a design piece of machinery or something like that. So these are some counter evidences to design, right? Evil. Is the world really orderly in such a way that things kind of turn out with a grand purpose and that sort of thing? Well, then what about evil, right? And Hume does the order in the world really reflect human machinery, right? How come it doesn't reflect, for instance, vegetables or something like that? So that couple of objections here that he raises with regard to this argument. Yeah. 
Um, I, I remember uh, in one of our, books, our first books that we read uh, together uh, with um, um, uh, Jason Lyle uh, talking about uh, DNA, and it's interesting here, Thomas Aquinas had n- no idea what DNA was, but uh, when we see unintelligible things, atoms, matter, energy working together for a purpose, we generally attribute to intelligence. And DNA is information. Information is communicated, communicated usually by an intelligence. In fact, the, the, the one place where you can point to the say that uh, something isn't uh, 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 being directed uh, that is a communication tool, that's information, the passing along of, of, of information is DNA. And it seems like DNA then is one of the ways that God communicates uh, uh, with the world because uh, um, mm-hmm. you have the information communicated. So uh, it'd be interesting fair. to see what, what Aquinas would do if he hadn't fallen off his donkey <laughs> and, uh, and lived a little bit longer. <laughs> So even on Christian presuppositions, one may object to the teleological argument. For to say that the world looks like something designed is to state an analogy between the world and objects designed by human beings. That's, you know, uh, if we find a, a painting in the woods and no one is around to, to paint it, uh, was there an artist? Well, we know <laughs> that that's always the case because uh, we are the ones that paint it. And so how can we look at then a rock and say, well, this rock had to be here because do you see any rock makers around? And then we point to, to God. But, Graham says, we are not interested in showing that the world was made by human beings. We want to show that it was made by the one who radically transcends human beings. A perfect analogy between the world and objects of the human design would actually be counterproductive to Christian apologetics. Oh, no, right. let's get away with, uh, get, get rid of the teleological, right? Right. So notice the teleological argument says, hey, look, let's look at this analogy between human productions and the world. And they seem to be similar. And therefore, we know that the world was or at least we can you know, in, uh, infer that the world was was designed. Well, the point here that Frame is making is uh, there's some problems with that. And so that's a good thing. Because we're not trying to argue that the world was designed by humans. Right. <laughs> and so, yes, there's going to be some differences between the, the uh, you know, the design of the world, how, the purposes, how it looks and that sort of thing, and human productions. That's what we would expect if it, if it was, uh, wasn't designed by humans, right? So he says some of humans' objections are actually productive. If the world is designed and made by God, then we would expect both analogy and disanalogy between the world and the products of human design, right? So we wouldn't expect it to fit exactly like we would suggest with human design because it's not made by human. On a Christian view, he says the world is something like an object of human design, something like it because it is designed, but it's also unlike such objects because it's a product of divine design, right? And thus, this teleology actually favors the human or the Christian conclusion. Even the existence of evil can be listed among the evidences of Christianity. Right. So even the problems that you see in the design argument, he says, is, um, uh, you know, uh, can actually favor the Christian uh, conclusion because we're not saying it was designed by people, Right. Human designs. We're saying uh, it gives its evidence of a designer, but different than human, therefore God. So he says we can make the teleological argument equivalent to the epistemological argument that we considered earlier. The two arguments share the teleological intuition. 
Like the teleological argument, the epistemological argument begins with the observation that the universe is a rational order and accessible to the human mind. In both cases, this fundamental uh, point is the same. Still, there is one advantage that the epistemological formulation has, and it is built on the premise that truth and rationality are moral values. Thus, the epistemological argument was reduced in turn to the moral argument, and the two arguments yielded the same theistic conclusion. So they're similar, and he can, he tries to say that they're really similar, but the epistemological argument obviously gets us uh, closer because of the moral aspects of that. Uh, and then you can argue into the, the, the moral arguments that we talked about in exactly. the last couple of episodes. And then we yeah. get into this distinction between personal and impersonal, and we then we go from there. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, that's the end of the teleological argument, uh, and we're going to continue on with the cosmological argument, and uh, we're going to pause here for the next episode. So uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. See you next time.